0: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Mansplaining Maryland edition. It's Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. On today's show, Blonde is a heavily fictionalized biopic. I mean, so much so, biopic's probably the wrong word. We'll get into it. It's about Marilyn Monroe. And it comes from the writer and director Andrew Dominic, and it's adapted from a novel by Joyce Carol Oates. And then Hulu has a new half-hour sitcom. It's about a half-hour sitcom on Hulu. It stars Rachel Bloom, Keegan-Michael Key, Paul Reiser, and it's from the creator of Modern Family. And finally, one of the real... Real Legends of Nashville Has Died. We discuss Loretta Lynn with Slate's own Carl Wilson. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the Deputy Managing Editor of uh, the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Uh-huh. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate.com and the author of a beautifully rendered extended biographical essay in the form of a book about Buster Keaton entitled Cameraman. Dana, um, you're out on the road for that, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And not at this moment, but I wanted to just say a quick word to some of the listeners who wrote in asking about how I have upcoming book tour dates in Seattle and the Bay Area in California. Indeed, I do. And to anybody who's written in, I will get back to you with all of the info. You have not missed those dates. They're in November and December. I also wanted to mention, and I'm so sorry to use this place for a plug, but I also have a thing, a really cool thing, a two-day Keaton Festival coming up in Kansas City, Missouri. So if you live in Kansas City, Missouri, or the Bay Area or Seattle, you can write into culturefest at slate.com and I'll give you all the details on those appearances.
0: Excellent. Yeah, people should go. I had so much fun at the one cameraman event i attended and co-hosted with uh, isaac butler that was really really cool so if these are anything like that i can't encourage people enough to go it'll be so fun
1: yeah i don't know if it's two years of COVID or what but i have been loving these book events like at every single one i meet people with incredible stories and we have great conversations and we have drinks at a bar afterwards like seriously please come out if you're in any of those three cities i would love to meet you
0: all right shall we make a show let us do so all right, please. Blonde, it's a new movie from writer director Andrew Dominic, as I said, it's based on a Joyce Carol Oates novel from about 20 years ago. It's a fictionalization of Marilyn Monroe's obviously one barely needs to even say it anymore. Tragic life. This is a very kaleidoscopic film, not at all a biopic, but a fragmented meditation on, as the film really argues, throughout the whopping discrepancy that opened up between Norma Jean Baker, a little girl orphaned by an absconded baby daddy, and her institutionalized mother. And uh, that person, Norma's inner life, is filled with all kinds of torment, and doubt, and self-doubt. And by the way, all of the great literature she's read, um, You know, she's repeatedly thinking about Dostoevsky and Chekhov. Um, and Marilyn, the dumb blonde and greatest Hollywood sex icon of all time, this fabrication that I think she hated uh, having been turned into. The film stars Anna Armas in the title role, Bobby Cannavale as Joe DiMaggio, and Adrian Brody as Arthur Miller, both of whom were her husbands at one point or another, all right, in the clip we're about to hear, Bobby Cannavale plays, I had said Joe DiMaggio, what I should have said is that the film is, uh, is very coy about this. He's credited as ex-athlete, so a character very strongly based on Joe DiMaggio who ended up married to um, Marilyn Monroe. They're on their first date in what we're about to hear. Let's, let's have a listen.
2: <laughs>
1: anyway, you don't seem retired. You're in the papers so much.
0: Well, not half as much as you, Marilyn.
3: <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> well, that's just studio publicity.
1: How oh, they're awful. The things they make up. I know you're supposed to get used to it. I just
0: can't. It really hurts. All right, Dana. Well, um, Oates had made uh, great pains to make totally plain to readers at the front of her novel. The novel was a novel. It was a work of fiction. You know, the way it, like Libra is about the uh, Oswald uh, assassination of Kennedy by DeLillo. I mean, there's just a lot of precedent for books that draw heavily, heavily upon primary and secondary historical sources, but then confect them into something really seriously fictionalized. Um, But doesn't this run up a little bit in this film against the expectation of biopics that we're seeing the true story behind the legend, its a peak behind the scenes? How did it work for you to have this story, which is already very familiar, retold in ways that at times hit the familiar beats, but at other times was so distinctly a work of imagination?
1: I mean, I guess it's a, it's a fine hair to split, but I would start off by saying that that's not what I object to in this movie. There's a lot about this movie that I strongly dislike, and hearing that clip just reminded me again of how annoyed I was it, it, nearly every one of the two hours and 48 minutes or whatever it is that this movie lasts but it wasn't about the divergence of the story on screen from Marilyn Monroe's real life. And it doesn't really have to do, I don't think, with the idea of fictionalizing a biography that we all know, you know, the main the main beats of. And I have not read the Joyce Carroll Oates novel. So all of that said, the things about this movie that made me, I think during the viewing of it just irritated, and then later on remembering the movie kind of angry, have more to do with the movie's tonality, it's emotional. Um, tone, which is extremely unvarying. And in my review of the movie, I call it miserablest. You know, I think that Andrew Dominic is determined, and he said this in interviews since, that he's determined to make the viewer feel bad. You know, I think he said in one much quoted interview that he thinks that the viewer should be howling like a rhesus monkey when they exit the movie. Left out in the snow. Left out in the snow. (laughs) I forgot. Yes, howling like a rhesus (laughs) monkey left out in the snow. That actually sounds like a more interesting mood than the one that I exited Blonde in. But yeah, it's one of those um, movies that wants to to just bludgeon the viewer with the awfulness of the subjective experience of this character. So, and I am not the first film critic to have said this about the movie, what I feel like this movie ends up doing is taking the performance of Ana de Armas, which I'm curious to hear if you guys agree with me, but I think is sort of amazing to the to the degree a performance can be amazing when it is of a very poorly written and narrowly imagined character and uh, and kind of imprisons it in this this awful narrative space where marilyn her marilyn doesn't get anything to do except suffer and if you think about why marilyn monroe's movies have lasted right i mean why she has remained such an enduring icon it's not because she was sexy and suffering i mean that is certainly a part of her myth But it's because she was fun to watch on screen. Fun being the key word. She had a sense of humor. She had a sense of wit about her own sexuality and her own objectification. But the movie is not interested in her as... An artist or as a worker, just a creator of work, or certainly as a person who ever had fun or enjoyed herself or desired anything. It's only interested in her as an object of other people's desire and exploitation. And granted, I mean, the movie is sympathetic to her, right? I actually don't agree with people who think that this movie is sadistic and kind of enjoying her exploitation exactly. Uh, And I think that Dominic's intent is to make this sort of feminist document about, look how, you know, society has torn this poor woman apart. But in doing so, I just feel like it betrays a much more important thing than the biographical facts. It, It betrays the spirit of a person who, you know, wanted to do more than she was able to do in the constrictions of the industry. and you know who who made some really interesting work and i mean as an example of that i will point to this moment um midway through the movie or so where it suddenly switches to black and white as this movie randomly does at certain moments for no apparent narrative reason and we're in an actor's studio class with Marilyn Monroe and some other acting students, and Arthur Miller's, or the character called, I guess he's called the playwright, who's based on Arthur Miller, is observing the class, right? And the idea is that everyone has very low expectations of this dumb blonde movie star, and that she then wows them all with her delivery of a monologue from one of Miller's plays. But Andrew Dominic, the director, chooses to fast forward, like literally you leave out in an ellipsis whatever she did during the delivery of the speech that made everyone so gaga over her delivery and it's just a very very strange choice like the point of the scene is to show us that she's better at delivering the speech than anyone expected but we ourselves the audience don't get to see it happen we just get to see the reaction there's just there's a lot of moments like that where it's almost like her agency is being taken away by Andrew Dominic so end of rant i've been talking for too long already but I felt that this movie did this over and over and over again, and it was endless and boring. And by the time I left, I was mad.
0: Julia, endless and boring and uh, maddening. uh, Where do you fall on this?
2: I'm such a creature of expectations. And we had heard so much about how terrible this film was, um, but thought it would be interesting to discuss Marilyn as a figure in this film's treatment of her anyway, that I went in bracing for sadism and worthlessness. And Probably because of that, I actually found myself admiring a lot about what the film sets out to do, or at least maybe that's the opposite of what I admired. I'm not sure I admire what the film sets out to do. I admire a lot of what the film ends up doing in that I think Anna de Armas' performance is really, really incredible. And it it sort of conjures, I think, the feeling that I've had watching Marilyn Monroe movies, which is just that she seems like this kind of vibrating special odd marvel to, to, to look at and behold and in kind of her beauty and her energy and her magnetism. So that was super compelling. And then I think the most generous possible interpretation of the film is that it's most interested in how disorienting fame is and being the object of so much fascination, lust, desire, sexism, dismissal. And so the film gets kind of less and less cogent as it goes along and she gets more and more disoriented and disassociated and there's sort of less and less of a self. It seems to posit like fame ruined her. Eventually there was nothing left inside and that's sort of formally interesting and it uses all kinds of interesting filmmaking tools to try to do that and fame does seem really bad and complicated. I don't know. I sort of thought that was interesting but in the end I, I did feel that it got further and further away from what was most interesting in her. And I think the, the criticism is it was never interesting in what was in her, but I think you do at the beginning, see a little bits of her, you know, negotiating her salary or moving to New York or comparing Arthur Miller's plays to Chekhov in ways that make him secure. And then those bits of, of buoyancy and interest and selfhood sort of disappear in drugs and attention and chaos. And that doesn't not feel like what might have happened.
0: Mm. I, uh, I have to say, I, I, I really hated this movie pretty much beginning to end. I admire her performance just as you do, Julie. I think it's remarkable, but it doesn't allow us to see Marilyn Monroe as her creation even a little bit. It's so about what's done to her, how objectified she is, sanctified, vilified, abandoned, Madonna Horde. you know, I felt like I'd been cornered by the most pretentious person at the party, you know, who wanted to mansplain the male gaze to me, and I just kept wanting to wander off, like, impolitely. The point is exactly as Dana said it, It's there's something totally self-conscious and playful about those performances, it's the relationship between the real confused, inchoate person and this, you know, icon, for lack of a better word, that makes those performances living today. And also, I, I can't get away, Dana, from the like. I mean, for lack of a better word, there is just sort of a body porn element to this movie. I mean, uh, you know, uh, people have been deeply offended by the the, the um, depictions of sexual violence and an, an abortion. Um, they're just I don't know. It's just hard for me to not perceive them as gratuitous uh, and borderline sadistic,
1: yeah. I think honestly, it was the movie was less graphic than I had thought from the you know, the pre-release hype about its NC seventeen rating and, you know, what it had done to deserve that. There's a lot of kind of waist up nudity, which I think is actually fairly true to life. Apparently, Marilyn Monroe loved to be naked and was almost always naked in her home domestic life. I think the most tasteless parts of the movie to me were those, as you describe it, like speculum cam abortions that we witness. And we haven't even gotten into the talking fetus, which is one of the most bizarre and tasteless parts of this movie in referencing the fact that Monroe had several miscarriages and probably also had some abortions, maybe some of them foisted upon her by the studio during her life. Uh, We get to see have a couple of conversations between her and the fetus that she's carrying and i mean especially in the particular atmosphere of reproductive rights that we're in right now they they just ring so tasteless and and so wrong i don't know if they, they bothered you guys too but yeah we haven't really talked about how this movie looks and feels visually and it's very very uh i mean i guess the polite term would be inventive andrew dominic has a big visual imagination and he sometimes he chops up you know, scenes into strange fragments, he um, has all kinds of uh, sort of distorting CGI effects to suggest Marilyn Monroe's drunkenness or drug abuse. And I guess it looks cool. But all of that stuff, to me, also, Steve went to the pretentious guy at a party cornering you and it felt like showing off. I mean, if any of that had come in the context of of telling me more about this person, besides their suffering, I might have been able to tolerate it. But
2: well, but did you guys not find any discordance between his, I mean, I, 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 I my attempt to mount a defense sort of collapse in the face of your guys' smart points here, but did you not find some tension in the vivacity, the, 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 the kind of juxtaposition of the life of Ananda Armas' performance? and the intelligence of it, and then the the dumbness of the movie around her. Like, mm. I don't know, she just, I found her so watchable.
1: Oh, completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, I, I probably say it better in what I wrote about the movie because I was just fresh from seeing it then and it had more, more detail in my mind. But it's a strange thing to admire a performance immensely while really disliking and even kind of... Um, being somewhat disgusted by the movie, it appears. And, and what it reminds me of in that way, and that tension that you described between the, an excellent performance imprisoned in a bad script is Joker, you know, mm. the movie Joker, mm-hmm. which nobody could say that Joaquin Phoenix does not bring it all and have several beautiful moments like his dancing scenes. And yet that character makes no sense. So when I see Joker, I feel sorry, not for the character that we're supposed to feel sorry for, the Joker, but for the really wonderful actor who's trying so hard to bring something to such a confused mishmash of, you know, exploitation and sentimentality and whatever else that movie is made of. And I think I feel something like that with this, too.
2: Yeah, I mean... In a world where resources and funding to direct studio films and biopics were unlimited, and this was but one of many, many movies about Marilyn Monroe, it would feel better to be like, well, and then this one guy made a slightly pompous, slightly dumber than he thinks it was, a luxury art house woo-woo kaleidoscope about how weird it must have felt to be Marilyn Monroe. Like in a world of infinite Marilyn movies, maybe that lands better than like, of all the people to make a Maryland movie, you could have Greta Gerwig's Maryland movie. You could have Catherine Bigelow's Mar- Maryland movie. Like you could have the Maryland movie of someone who is much more curious about her art, her life, her mind, rather than her being kind of the object of so much attention and so, so much gaze. That's what makes it feel insulting. It's like this is the guy that they
0: gave for this movie all right <laughs> <laughs> and i think i think we have our last word there all right the movie is blonde it's streaming on netflix i think we're two emphatic thumbs down and one curiously equivocal thumb wavering between up and down but uh, <laughs> anyway check it out or not but if you do we'd love to hear from you let's move on All right. Well, Reboot is on Hulu. It's from the creator of Modern Family. It's a half-hour comedy, but it's about the making of a half-hour comedy on Hulu. That's only uh, twist number one, though. The second one is the show is a reboot of an early aughts hit that was a super corny laugh track riot that is now being turned by its millennial showrunner into a dark look at family dysfunction, which sets up... Twist number three, the original show was created by her own highly dysfunctional and very absent father the show stars rachel bloom as hannah paul riser as her father as well as keegan michael key and johnny knoxville and judy greer in the clip we're about to hear paul riser wrangles with the cast of the show and with his estranged daughter played by bloom who may or may not end up his creative partner let's listen Oh, hey, okay. Look at this little uh, menagerie. What's happening here? Gordon, obviously, we were all thrown yesterday to find out that Hannah was your daughter. But, you know, family dynamics, they're so. I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't
2: know. Could you find it while I'm still young, please? Gordon, we want her to stay for the good of the show. Hey, just yesterday, I asked her to stay, and she said, quote, I'd rather work at
0: SeaWorld.
1: And then I had to explain to him why that's an insult.
2: Who doesn't love the Dolphin Spectacular? The Dolphins.
0: All right, Julia, let me start with you. This show is nothing if not meta. That can sometimes work, sometimes fall flat on its face. Where did you come out on that with this show?
2: It's so interesting that Rachel Bloom is in the show because she is the very, very inventive, like almost too clever for primetime creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend which is a very smart, ironical meta show. And so it's funny that she's in the show, but isn't the creator of the show. The creator of the show is Steve Levitan, the creator of Modern Family and Just Shoot Me and and more classic kind of sitcom lineage type shows and his sort of standing characters played by Paul Reiser. So you have this weird feeling that the concept of the show is actually a perfect concept for Rachel Bloom to have been the writer of. And yet Steve Levitan is the creator and show of it. And she's merely acting. And as a result, there's like a tonal wobble as you watch it because the whole point is that the show is trying to decide, you know, is it a classic like set up laugh line, set up laugh line, you know, corny multicam sitcom of Yesteryear, or is it a arty edgy, you know, single cam dr- sitcom that's secretly just like a sad drama about how people are sad, where some of the lines make you Riley smile the more current comedy trends. And the concept for the show is so good. And the cast is pretty great. Like love to see Johnny Knoxville in an acting role. Oh my God, Judy Greer. She's sensational in this. Keegan-Michael Key always kind of makes me squirm, but I think that's his superpower actually. And he's at his squirmiest here. And yet it's like not as good as it should be. It's like, I kind of hope that it does get another season to work out its kinks because I actually think the conceptual bones and the performances could gel into something tonally clearer and better than what is there. There's just a lot of kind of bozo jokes in this and and a lot of uh, missed opportunities. That was my takeaway. What did you guys think?
1: Wow. You know, I I knew when I was watching this that I was going to probably be the strongest defender of the show. And it may have to do with just how it landed with me on this particular week. I think I just really needed to like something and enjoy something in a simple way. And that was exactly how I felt about this show. I never watched Modern Family, so I don't know, or except maybe a couple times for us to talk about it for, you know, the first season for a segment here. So I don't really have a sense of the the Stephen Levitan universe that this is either, you know, coming from or or subverting or whatever it's trying to do. So I can't really speak to the currents that are creating something like Reboot. All I can say is that this show made me laugh. I really enjoyed it and I liked it enough that as I was watching to prep for this segment, there were only four segments that had dropped. But last night at midnight, I knew another one was coming and I stayed up until midnight to watch the last half hour I could possibly watch to bring it to our conversation just because I wanted to keep on seeing what was happening. So yes, this show hits conventional sitcom beats in its construction, but that was actually kind of a relief to me. I feel like we watch so many streaming shows streaming comedies that have this kind of raggedy, uneven quality like, oh, I don't know if this episode is going to be 20 minutes long or 40 minutes long because the segments are all different in this show. And oh, it takes 10 episodes to actually figure out the deep mythology of the Me Too allegory or something (laughs) like this show has none of that. Everything is right there in the text and it is tightly constructed. It's always half an hour long, which I appreciate. And it usually has about three plots going at once that interweave fairly successfully. All the performances, I agree, Julia, are really excellent. We haven't talked about the kid, who I think is one of the funniest characters on the show. So the, this the sitcom they're rebooting had a child in the original version. And now 15 years later, he's this 20-something kid who's sort of an aging child actor who hasn't fully grown up yet. And Caleb Worthy playing this kid Zach is just hilarious. And slowly, as the as the season goes on, becomes a deeper and deeper character. At the beginning, he's sort of a pain in the ass, you know, that the, the adult actors just want to get rid of. And then his stories start to take on more of an arc and he gets really interesting. And I now actually love this show and I want to watch it all the way (laughs) through till the end. But I kind of feel about it in a way that's hard to defend on the Culture Fest. It's not that it's breaking any new ground necessarily. I just feel like now it's one of my shows and it's a comfort watch and I'm going to keep on going.
2: Dana, if you like this show, you should go back and watch Modern Family, which is actually like an excellent version of a classic sitcom. Like if you like Stephen Levitan's vibe, you should go watch Modern Family where it actually is in its like highest and best form.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess I should. I mean, I it seems like part of what this show is about is the tension between a show like that that's a network show for a broader audience and something like this that's a streaming show, right? And we haven't really talked about it, but this, this show's on Hulu and there's also some sort of mockery of Hulu within it because the show within it is being shot on Hulu. I don't know. I mean, this show has everything to be one of the kind of insufferable, self-regarding show business comedies that we get sick of talking about, I think. And, you know, we've often mentioned before that people in Hollywood can't think of stories about anything except Hollywood, but because it has a sweetness to it and a a lightheartedness and I think is not ultimately mean toward its characters... I had a lot more patience for this show. Also, we haven't really talked about her much because she never gets talked about as much as she deserves. But Judy Greer finally getting a role where she actually gets to do something besides be the supportive best friend of the rom-com heroine is just brilliant. And I happen to be, I was looking at, at Judy Greer's bio on Wiki just to remember things I'd seen her in in the past and how often I've wished that she had a bigger part. And that seems to run through all of Judy Greer criticism. Like as you look at her Wiki entry and the reception of her various projects, Person after person, including me, I'm quoted in her wiki page, but all these critics keep on saying, (laughs) underutilized, doesn't get enough to do. Judy Greer, team player, always great, wish she had a bigger role. This comes up over and over and over again throughout her career. So for her to get this big role of this, you know, hilarious. And she reminds me a little bit of the Lisa Kudrow character in that, you know, what was that fake reality show? The Comeback. The comeback. Yes, exactly. Um, it's a little bit that sort of character, right? Like someone who's really vain and worried about aging and very self-regarding, but ultimately also sort of a ditzy delight. And uh, and so any moment she's on screen is a good moment. Yeah, I'm sorry. I like reboot. Sue me.
2: <laughs> Steve, break the tie.
0: Team Dana. I took no notes. I have nothing to say other than this show cracked me the fuck
1: yes high five and you virtually steve
0: everything about it was designed to make me hate it and everything about its execution made me love it all the critical bones in my body are inert right now i cannot separate <laughs> myself from my own love for it right from the beginning uh riser's terrific in it Judy Greer is a revelation. She's so funny in it. She's so absolutely pitch perfect. I'm a avowed enemy of Cake and Eat It Two productions that say, we'll do this same shitty formulaic, over-familiar thing but we'll do it with this layer of postmodern irony and therefore get away with it all over again and satisfy every living person on the planet and back up the Brinks truck and whatever. I I, I hate that. I hate Hollywood cannibalizing itself with satire. It's like, get out of your world. Like, go fucking turn your gaze on something else. Like, I just don't need to see, I don't need to be inside another uh, writer's room on another lot I just didn't care. I was like, I just want these jokes. I laughed repeatedly into my noise cancellation headphones at like five in the morning this morning. And um, I want to be around these people. I think they're hilariously funny.
2: Are you serious? You guys are going to defend those excruciating writer's room scenes where the alter you know, white people from the writer's rooms of the 80s are like, my joke. And then the, you know, woke writers hired for the streaming show are like, don't make fun of indigenous people. Like, come on. Those scenes sucked. Really?
1: <laughs> but Fred Melamed is in them and Fred Melamed is yes. not funny.
2: <laughs> That's I mean, true. The Fred Melamed kind of saves it. And oh, and, then, and then Rachel Bloom quits and she trips on the trash can and they're all united by the, the you know common love of slapstick. And somehow the person who tripped on the trash can isn't Johnny Knoxville. Like, come on. It's it's good. It has good bones, but it's not there yet. It's not like uh, an un- unmitigated success.
0: Listen, Homer nods. I mean, woe unto the person who sees only the blemish and not the beautiful face. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's not perfect, but it's, it's like goodwilled and kind of raffish. And it's not in my perception in the least bit self-regarding. Plus, I don't know what Paul Reiser's been doing since Mad About You. A ton of things, no doubt. But going back to Diner when I first encountered him literally in 1981, I have loved Reiser. This is a perfect, I mean, I don't want to say resurrection. It's way too condescending. The man works, works all the time. He's a fucking legend. But he's just, it's terrific to see him in this role. It suits where he is in his career and life. Uh, and I, I feel like he's just bringing that that same Set of chops to it. I, I again, like, I love the way we've all regressed to our sort of pre-critical cortex or something. Like, we're all sort of loving and hating it without using elevated language. But it doesn't demand overthinking, right? It's like Dana. I, I agree. There's, there's like, we're only. I mean, most of us, I think, we're only. I mean, we're living normally, but but emotionally, we're only halfway out of COVID and fully in like under the COVID delusion, the lockdown delusion. We all thought Ted Lasso was a good TV show. And halfway out of it, we think this is a good TV show. And maybe all the way out of it, we'll be back to, you know, Dostoevsky and Chekhov. But as of right now, this feels, it it hits some spot that sorely needs hitting.
1: This show felt uh, somehow medically necessary to me. And as I said earlier, it it does hit conventional beats. I'm not defending it on the grounds of it being a groundbreaking piece of art. But as I think I've made clear in many discussions about TV, I really appreciate TV shows, especially half-hour sitcoms that feel episodic and tightly scripted and as if they have a beginning, middle and end and know what they set out to accomplish and accomplish it. And this show, to me, does that. And right now that's enough.
0: All right, well, Loretta Lynn died last week at the age of 90. She is, I mean, it goes without saying, an icon of country music, tough, no-nonsense woman whose attitude and career cut hard against the grain of Nashville in the 60s and well beyond. She said, I wasn't the first woman in country music. I was just the first one to stand up there and say what I thought what life was about the rest were afraid to. And she also said, I didn't write for men, I wrote for women. That's that's a big subject of Carl Wilson's uh, remembrance of her on Slate. Of course, Carl is Slate's music critic. Carl, welcome back. So good to be
3: here and to be talking about Loretta.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess it's probably fair to say that her I don't know, most familiar song is Coal Miner's Daughter made that much more familiar by the extraordinary biopic starring Sissy Spacek that came out, I think, in 1980, a great movie in its own right. But she was uh, the product of a very specific time and place and upbringing. Why don't we start there and then then move on to the bulk of your piece, which is wonderfully about her um, complicated feminism. But, but talk about her, uh, what turned her into L- Loretta Lynn?
3: Yeah, I mean... So as, as the song and the movie, um, Coal Miner's Daughter, really lay out very clearly and unforgettably, Loretta was born in um, Butcher's Hollow, Kentucky, a coal mining community in a large family of, I think, six or seven siblings. And then she got married at uh, the age of 15 To Oliver Lynn, who was known locally as Doolittle because he didn't want to be a coal miner, and also as Mooney because one of the things he did instead of coal mining was make moonshine. Um, And they moved out to Washington State a couple of years later over the course of... up between that marriage and, and when uh, she turned 20, she had her first four children. She had twins a few years later, making six all together. But one of the things that uh, happened was her, her husband overheard her singing and uh, thought she was really good and bought her a guitar in the 50s. And she taught herself to play and taught herself to write songs as well, which was a unusual thing for any country artist to do for themselves um, in that era and uh, particularly for a woman to do. And she started gigging around at clubs and eventually got picked up by a record label. And basically by the early 60s, she was putting songs on the country charts, but her Big breakthrough kind of came in the mid 60s when she really started singing those kind of outspoken songs about the sort of battle of the sexes that became her signatures. And so she started first having her first country number ones around then and proceeded along those lines into the early 70s when also her um, several records of duets with Conway Twitty became mainstream country hits. So eventually, By sort of the early 70s, she was really the queen of country music at the time. She was the first woman in country to be given the CMAs, the Country Music Association's biggest award, Entertainer of the Year. Um, and at the end of the 70s, she was given an Entertainer of the Decade Prize. And she she really sort of defined uh, country music in that time in a lot of ways alongside people like Dolly Parton and Tammy Wynette, and you know, on the women's side and people like George Jones and Conway um, on the men's side. And really there's no country singer especially women country singers and lots of women outside of country for whom she's not a definitive influence carl let's go back to the 60s
0: and maybe pick um, one of the early songs that showed her emergence you know something a little less familiar you have a tune you want to play
3: well, I was going to suggest that we listen to her first country number one, which is from 1966, um, Don't Come Home and Drinkin' with Lovin' on Your Mind, which is really an indicator of both her sense of humor and that kind of battle of the sexes theme. And, you know, this the humorousness of the song with this really kind of dark undertone about about a husband coming home sozzled and trying to force himself on his wife um, and that's kind of a balance of forces that she kept going
1: well you thought i'd be waiting up when you came home last night you'd been out with all the boys and you ended up
2: half tied but liquor and love they just don't mix leave the ball
1: Carl, I guess maybe this is a good way that 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 clip is a good end to um, to talk about kind of the the approach that you took in your tribute to Loretta Lynn on Slate, which was to kind of take on her, her, I don't know what you would call it, her ambivalent confrontational style of feminism. I don't know if you could quite call her a feminist. I don't think she would have wanted to call herself one, as most female country singers don't, but. There's no question that throughout her career, there was a tone not unlike the one we hear in that last song, right? I mean, she wrote about troubled marriages from the point of view of the the put-upon woman. She wrote about um, female rivals, right, in songs like Fist City or You're Not Woman Enough to Take My Man in this also kind of confrontational aggro way, but but humorously so. And um, and she also, as you as you talk about, wrote about you know birth control and the pill and what would be would have been called women's lib at the time, uh, in a way that was unusual. But that is also hard for us now as twenty first century you know talking from a feminist point of view as twenty first century feminists to um to incorporate and to metabolize. So there's a lot going on with Loretta Lynn's attitude toward being a woman in the world, and I wondered if you could talk about that.
3: Yeah, I mean. She really, really did break an enormous amount of ground in terms of both singing about um, topical public interest issues in ways that were really kind of out of bounds in the country industry at the time. But also the specific sense of writing from a woman's point of view for women, um, not sort of playing the character of a dutiful or shrinking damsel or, or, you know, even the faithful wife, although she was that, um, but she certainly flirted with the idea that that one didn't necessarily have to feel confined by domestic duty entirely. You know, she wrote the song in uh, the early '70s, "Rated X," which is about divorce and about the stigma attached to divorced women. The supposed, you know, the supposition that they were um, floozies that was still in the in the culture at the time. Um, and, yeah, and about birth control with The Pill, which she recorded in 1972. It wasn't an original song of hers, but, but she cut it in 1972. And the record company held it back until 1975, um, still feeling that it might be too edgy for the country market. And when it came out in 1975, it was banned by all kinds of country radio stations that refused to play it. But at the same time, yeah, she did not have a... a completely sympathetic relationship with the women's liberation movement that was coming out of, you know, the big cities on the coast. And that I think like, you know, definitely it is true that that that's partly for marketing reasons and not to want to tie yourself too much to a controversial political movement. But I think she also had genuine differences and a sense of alienation from the tone of the movement, you know, as a woman who um, never went to high school, and had four children in her teens and in a lot of ways didn't feel like the the kind of white middle class to upper middle class educated women feminist movement in its way of presenting itself really spoke to her and her experience and but you know in a lot of ways she dealt with all the same kinds of themes that were driving that movement in terms of you know equal rights equal pay working women the question of 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 power balances in marriage and of the burdens of motherhood that was all there from early on in her work and she really had a kind of crackling voice uh, that brooked no um wishy-washiness about what she was saying
2: can we listen a little bit to the pill you want- show me the world but all i've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill i'm tearing down your brooder house because now
3: i've got the pill
2: all these years i've stayed in- the other thing that really strikes me going back and listening to her songs this weekend is there's almost like a trojan horse quality to her, the way her politics is embedded in her songs in that and I mean that as a compliment in that she's using what I think of as the key tools of country songwriting which is humor and storytelling um, and and the songs are absolutely grounded in specific details and and listening a wry smile when you get to the chorus and and then embedded within that is like no, you you can't actually have sex with your wife whenever you want. Sometimes she doesn't want to have sex with you or um, she actually does not want to stay home and have unlimited children forever. And reproductive freedom is is important to her. (laughs) And there's a way in which the kind of, will she call herself a feminist question feels almost like it misses the point in that she's finding ways that are so clever and smart and just delicious to listen to, to use classic elements of the genre to advance modern ideas about gender
3: yeah i mean one there are so many levels on which the pill operates in that way one of the things i love is that especially in the first half of the song she continually compares herself to a chicken (laughs) and who has to lay eggs all the time and you know one of the sort of like very punk rock but very country lines in it is is I'm tearing down this brooder house <laughs> you know it's, it's a, and like I think it's very deliberate that it's that country about its way of talking about this very modern subject and then at the in the sort of wind up to the song it really strongly presents the appeal to the husband in the sense that you know once I'm not pregnant and having children all the time I'll want to dress up and go out and have sex with you all of those things and it's certainly celebrating her own pleasure in doing those things but it's definitely trying to say to the husband like this is not a loss for you this is a gain for you and so it's it is very strategic and clever on all those levels
1: Carl, there's so many places we could go with such a long career, but something that really struck me in reading about Loretta Lynn is that, talk about making music until the end, she recorded an album, as you mentioned, when she was 89 years old last year in 2021, and that was just so incredible to me that I was hoping maybe we could go out on hearing a cut from that album. Do you have an idea of what we could listen to? Yeah,
3: yeah, that album, incidentally, was produced by her daughter Patsy, obviously named after Patsy Cline, and with um, John Carter Cash, the son of Johnny Cash. So there's a real cross generational energy there. And the title track, Still Woman Enough, um, is a duet with Reba McIntyre and Carrie Underwood. So then that's a way to bring things full circle.
2: Well, I've been
1: through some bad times, been on the bottom. Been at the top And I've seen life From both sides It's what you make With what you've got There's been times Life's got me down Pick myself up And bounce right back around I wasn't raised to give up And to this day You know what I'm still woman enough Still got one in takes.
0: All right. Well, Carl, thanks so much for coming on to talk about Loretta Lynn. What, a, what an incredible career and woman and set of songs. Uh, thanks for coming back. Come come back soon. Always. All right. Let's endorse. Uh, Dana Stevens, what do you have?
1: Well, as long as we're talking about Judy Greer, I have a perfect segue to my endorsement, which is that I'm endorsing a movie with Judy Greer. I'm getting a chance to do all the great things she can do. And in fact, it is thematically related to reboot in that it's a movie about TV. This is a movie called The TV Set from 2007, I believe it was. It was. I remember that I had just started writing on movies pretty recently for Slate and, and I remember reviewing it and absolutely loving it. So I went back and reread my review because I vaguely remembered wasn't Judy Greer in a great movie way back, you know, um, a decade and a half ago. TV set is this really, it's actually quite different from reboot in that it's not a satire. It's a, it's a, it's a dramatic film about the making of a TV show. And, uh, without spoiling too much about the movie, it's sort of about the compromises that have to be made in order to keep a broadcast sitcom on the air. Sigourney Weaver is also in it as this wonderfully soulless TV executive who keeps trying to dumb down the show. And, uh, David Duchovny is the, the TV writer who's trying to keep the show Quality um, and uh, and it's just it's a really really nice fairly serious but also sort of tragicomic story about uh, artistic compromise. Judy Greer gets a, a rare chance as she does again in reboot now to um, to do all the things that she can do so well and play drama and comedy both at once. And uh, just the other day, I saw Emily Nussbaum, former TV critic at The New Yorker, who writes wonderfully on television, putting out a question, what is a, what is a great um, movie about TV? And my recommendation and the recommendation of some other people in the thread was watch the TV set. It's directed by Jake Kazdan. It's from 2007, and uh, it's out there streaming if you want to try to find it.
0: That is very cool. I did not know that show existed. Um, Julia, what do you have?
2: I would like to recommend a cookbook called Snacking Cakes by Yossi Arefi. Uh, That's Snacking Cakes, colon, Simple Treats for Anytime Cravings, colon, a baking book, a double, a double subhead, a double subtitle. You gotta love it. Um, The complication of the subtitle is at odds with the conceit of the book, which is that sometimes you want to just dump a bunch of stuff in one bowl, stir it up, throw it in a pan and stick it in the oven and make something tasty in like 45 minutes. And you don't want multiple steps and you don't want to, you know, be piping things or uh, doing anything too complicated. And this is just a great slender little cookbook full of, you know, quickie half an afternoon baking projects. I made a zesty zucchini seed cake this weekend that was lemon zest zucchini cinnamon and then you just like dump all the seeds you have at your house in it so i did flax and chia and poppy and some slivered almonds and it's yummy and crunchy and never would have thought to make it without this delicious little cookbook smacking cakes by yossi Arafi. so check it out
1: i love your food recommendations i'm scribbling that down right now
0: that Sounds very cool. Okay. Um, I want to endorse uh, how to even put it. I'm not really endorsing a specific thing, but I want to note that the, I think, truly great philosopher Bruno Latour has died. Uh, here's a quote that I think, I can't remember whether it was Guardian or Lamond or someone quoted Latour as having once said, facts remain robust only when they are supported by a common culture, by institutions that can be trusted, by a more or less decent public life by more or less reliable media. And so I guess what I'm endorsing is anyone listening, if they're so inclined, becoming interested in the life and work of Latour, if they aren't already. um, uh, There's so many good books you could email me if you wanted to, and I could tell you which ones I liked and why. But what I would also say is just throw the lie back into someone's face, if they dare tell it to you, that somehow the post-truth... Uh, culture that's a creation of right-wing uh, ethno-nationalist morons somehow originated in like French philosophy or postmodern theory or literary theory or the a- a- academy or something like that. That's complete and utter nonsense. That sentiment as voiced by Latour is the absolute opposite of everything the post-truth culture is and has become. So anyway, in memoriam, Bruno Latour, I believe a truly astonishing uh thinker um julia thank you so much thank you steve and uh, dana of course as always a pleasure thanks
1: it was it was a joy
0: you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that's slate.com slash and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com our introductory music is by the composer nicholas bertel our producer is yanni evans our production assistant is nadira goff for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.
2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today, we are going to discuss a piece on site by Henry Grabar, headline, Fear City, the GOP's rhetoric about urban life, disgusting and violent, soaked in blood, has really gotten out of hand. The piece is a review of uh, an array of competitive races in these upcoming midterm elections and the language around cities and urbanism that Republicans are employing in all kinds of corners of the land. And so we thought we'd take a moment to step back um, and, and kind of think through how our political perceptions of cities are evolving these days. Steve, I'll start with you as our city mouse, country mouse. Uh, What did you make of this piece and and the the broader themes that
0: Henry is describing? Oh, Julia, it was so interesting to me to read that piece because it echoes the experience I've had over the last decade plus um, as a city person living in a country or rural environment, an old legacy farming community, and trying to... um, become a part of that community at exactly the moment that the right is demonizing urbanites, urban life, as not as frankly, as non-Americans, right. And as somehow inherently belittling patronizing of, um, you know, quote unquote, real Americans, which is always a euphemism for white Americans. And I think in some ways, especially rural working class or, or downwardly mobile um, Americans. And my community is largely very, very poor. And so those tensions were very alive to me the whole time. I mean, what I see up close is the real tragedy of it because waging a culture war against elites is one way of disempowering the government from actually doing anything substantive to help Exactly that part of America that for a very long time is kind of misunderstood or understudied when it comes to poverty, which we now overwhelmingly associate with, um, you know, basically urban slums. And in fact, rural America is economically devastated and completely left behind. And so I've seen up close this comfort sort of narrative that um, rural America has been handed in which they remain the like Jeffersonian exalted soul of the nation. You know, archetypal Americans live in the countryside associated with or nearby farms. They are not within the fallen city. And the most single most amazing thing that I think I've seen is how distant people who live about two hours away from New York City are from the urban culture of New York City or from any, in some instances, literally any experience, firsthand experience of New York City. And yet there's a huge mythology about it, about its dangers, its depravities in their minds, a serious part of which is That somehow New York City is draining down the public coffers of New York State, and that's what's left them impoverished. When in fact, the, the reality is the opposite, that New York, for better or for worse, New York is the financial center, financial capital of the entire world, of global capitalism. It is a booming, thriving, super wealthy city. That net-net sends way more tax dollars upstate than the other way around. I mean, like like overwhelmingly so. And I'll just leave you with one statistic and then I'll stop talking. But I live in Columbia County where there is powerful anti-government sentiment throughout the county. Like, fuck Biden signs. Let's go Brandon signs everywhere. Trump 2024 signs everywhere. Totally dismaying, right? Any guesses who the largest employer in Columbia County is? Columbia County, right? Like, were it not for these government jobs, the unemployment rate, which is already high in Columbia County, would skyrocket. So it is a very, very strange mindset. It's impossible, I think, not to at some level sympathize with it, even though you were the object of an enormous amount of animus, and yet not to feel as though you're seeing the mechanism of false consciousness up close so dana what, what were your thoughts on these
1: i mean this is this is an incredible thing to track i almost wish that that henry or someone would go on and write a book about this about the the history of the demonization of the city because it, it has obviously such a long history and you know the groups who were being demonized in the city have changed but This this kind of division between rural America and urban America, and the idea that it's this stationary, you know, unchanging. Um, uh, competition or aggression between the two goes back, as Henry points out in this piece, to Thomas Jefferson. Right. I mean, it's just it's this very old division in the kind of fantasy of what America is that has less and less to do with what actual life in the country is like as people get more mobile and the boundaries get more porous in between these two places. And I mean, even just the simple fact that that this opposition between country and city that, you know, on cable news and and in in Conservative rhetoric is constantly being pushed so hard assumes that no one ever moves, you know, and that, for example, here here is Steve living in Columbia County. But where is he from? He's from Manhattan. Right. I mean, you don't living somewhere does not mean that you have deep roots in that place necessarily in America. In fact, just the opposite. We're all very mobile and most of us live in these Bland exurban spaces that are neither country nor city. J. D. Vance himself, who's quoted in this this article as, you know, one of the people who's constantly demonizing cities in his rhetoric, you know, paints himself as as being this poor country boy. But, in fact, you know, seems to come from a somewhat exurban kind of space himself. And, yeah, there's just there's a lot of lying and posing in all of these stories. And, you know, as somebody who moved from, uh, an exurban place, right? Some place that's in a big city, but then is it a part of the country, Texas, that likes to identify itself with the rural part of the divide, or at least many Texans do, right? I just, I regard all of these boundaries as being pretty porous and and meaningless. I mean, what is the city made up of? It's made up of people who come from there, yes, but also people who wanted to get away from somewhere else, whether they're immigrants or people like me who fled a different place so that they could live somewhere more densely populated and to them more interesting. Um so I don't know. I mean w- honestly when I was reading this roundup that Henry makes of you know the way that um political actors talk about the city it really reminded me of the the caravan you know of that monster story of the caravan that kept being evoked during the Trump administration whenever they needed to scare people to the polls and this idea that there's some vague large group of immigrants converging on the border at some scary date in the future that we all have to be terrified about. That's sort of the way cities are talked about. You know, they're always there and they're always going to have black and brown people that you can scare your voters into going to the polls about. And uh, Henry quotes this this tweet from J.D. Vance. I guess this is from last year saying, I have to go to New York soon and I'm trying to figure out where to stay. I have heard it's disgusting and violent there. But is it like Walking Dead season one or season four? So hardy har, (laughs) right? Like, let's make New York sound scary like a caravan. But really, what's being said there is just this barely veiled racism. Like, oh, when I step out of my hotel room in New York City, I will see people of different races and speaking different languages. And that's so scary for me, J.D. Vance. To me, it seems very odd that you would think people would vote for you because you're such a coward that you can't walk out of a hotel in New York City. But it seems to be working for a certain segment of candidates.
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's this weird thing that overlays. It overlays the racial animus and fear that the GOP is currently deploying politically in ever more kind of central, less dogwissily further down into just the regular register of the chorus kind of ways. Um, but then overlays it with this at this very different moment for cities after the pandemic where or after quote unquote after the pandemic, during whatever phase this is of the pandemic, where um you know, the, the, the vitality of cities is under attack and it's in this other way of like, well, you don't have to actually be there to do your job anymore necessarily. And you could work from somewhere else and actually rural areas could get more filled up with city people and the kind of beautiful collective buoyancy that can make a city great of like, Well, the subway works well and there's enough trains because there's so many people taking the trains that they got to keep running more trains. And then it's even better to use the subway and even faster because there's so many trains, you know, just the, the fragility of that ecosystem of scale, I think, has been revealed by the last few years. So cities are a little bit more raggedy right now than maybe they were three or four years ago, I think, in terms of weather their current functioning makes the best case for the urban life and the, the kind of overlay of exploiting racism and the ways in which cities are under stress right now feels, um, worth observing and worth paying close attention to.
0: Yeah. Julia, I agree with all of that. And of course the, the, you know, not even subtext, the text here is always, you know, race and, and race, you know, just very cynical race baiting by people like Vance, who's despicable. But, um, you know, it's funny also though, that when you, I agree that the, that the relatively micro trend is towards post COVID is towards a, Slightly more dangerous New York City, I believe. Though, funnily, it's funny how little that shows up in the statistics. But the macro trend from the 90s until now has been, you know, really a almost startling uh, decline in in uh, crime rates in New York City and other major major urban centers in the United States during which time a non-urban public perception of crime in the cities has skyrocketed. And I don't think we can exaggerate the extent to which the Fox News audience and and right-wing media audience has been fed this lie about American cities. Also, local news, much of which is owned by Fox, or um, for a while it was Sinclair, uh, pumping this idea of like, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, obviously, has been the sort of programming credo, but generally framing the world as like, just outside your doorstep mayhem. So stay inside and watch TV. I mean, it's this toxic message that's embedded to the point where the discrepancy between those lines on the graph, like perceptions of crime and actual crime rates. Um, it's just, it's just astounding how wide it is.
2: Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out, Steve. And I didn't mean to suggest that I'm buying into the b- Republican notion of urban decline. I just think there is, we are at a moment of um, urban stress.
0: Oh, very much so, and I've been on the receiving end of it. I've been in New York City a lot more um, lately, and um, you know, it, you know, effectively, it's a it's a social services breakdown, um, primarily in the wake of COVID, as it's been explained to me by a variety of people, um, and um, and that has changed the tone of the street life of the city, noticeably, perceptibly, and um, but that's it's it's. So so I mean, and that's the other tragedy of this, right, Dana? Is that the 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 credulous Americans have been trained to believe that this is a you know uh, a police issue, right? It's a question of like more policing, harder policing, tougher sentences. Um, that the solution is punitive. When you talk to anybody with a brain, that is not it. There are social causes for this. If you address the social causes, you know the problem at the level of bourgeois perception, especially white bourgeois perception, you know, substantially goes away. Right. But more importantly, at least you're doing something to treat the underlying dislocation uh, and pain that goes into causing spikes in crime. And we end up in the opposite place. We're supposed to be over and over again because of this stupid binary, this crude binary. Authentic American with white and rural, right? And inauthentic is city dwelling elitist or poor person.
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, just both personas are being completely invented in order to be played against each other, like, you know, kayfabe wrestlers or or two action figures being banged together, you know, in the rhetoric of all these political figures. I mean, even if it is true, like, let's posit that cities have become marginally more dangerous after, as you say, Steve, having many decades of becoming safer and safer uh, because of, you know, issues caused by the economy, the pandemic, et cetera. Nobody on the right, certainly, is proposing any real fixes to this or even regarding it as a problem. It's more, it's almost like a salivating gladness that such a thing is happening so that there are statistics to be waved about at rallies. And that is just completely enraging.
2: All right. Well, Henry Gravar's piece is called Fear City. It's on Slate. Thank you so much, Slate Plus members, for supporting Slate's journalism, for supporting our show, for listening, and we will see you next week.